that uh, life sort of has that way, doesn't it? Life is very unpredictable. And uh, I remember some years ago, a girlfriend of mine um, was just going about life, as you do, and uh, found herself in a very, very difficult and unfortunate situation that she hadn't asked for. She was doing all the right things. She loved Jesus. And uh, she found herself in a situation where her husband had had an affair. And um, that was a tough time for her and for her children. And uh, through a series of um, interventions and forgiveness and a whole stack of things, she made the decision to actually take him back home and uh, to get on as hard as it would be and as hard as that journey ahead would be to get on with life and uh, to put forgiveness first and one foot before the other and, uh, and do this for her kids. And so they got back together and... Um, just when she thought that she could just focus on getting this right and making this work and, 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 and knowing that every day would be a hard day but she was going to walk through hard places. Her family, who should have loved her the most, and actually they did love her the most, her dad and her siblings um, absolutely loved her so much so that they suffocated her. They were so worried about this decision that she'd made to take her husband back home that I were on her case like nothing else about that being the worst decision she could have possibly made, about the fact that this was her out, about the fact that if you do it once, you can do it again, and they went on and on and on. Their words, not mine. And she thought, God, I thought I'd done the right thing. I felt that you were directing me to do this, and this is a decision that you helped me make because in my humanness, no one would make that decision easily. And where are you, God, she thought. And they just went on and on and on and they threatened her saying at family events, we're not going to talk to him. We appreciate that this is your decision, but we think you've got rocks in your head. We think you're stupid. And you know what? Maybe you've forgiven him, but you have to because you've got a life to get on with, but we don't have to forgive him. And at the next family event, we're not talking to him. We got no respect for him. And it was coming at her from everywhere. And she thought, my, oh my, have you ever been in that situation Maybe not that one in particular, but where you've been in a situation in life where you are so confused and you are so wondering where God is on your scene, where you know in your head that God is real, where you've been taught and you've grown up, maybe even in a Christian family where you know that God's got your best interest at heart and that he's the God of breakthroughs and he's the God that comes through where you've even potentially got incredible precedence in your life, where you've seen God move in incredible ways and you know that he's a powerful God because he's come through you before, not just once, not just twice, but over and over again. You know it in your head, but yet you find yourself in this tough situation where you can't help but ask the question, God, where are you on my scene? Why are you not in the middle of my situation? Because if you were, you should be doing something, right? Where are you on my scene? And for many of us, that looks very different, maybe for you, where you've asked that question before. Maybe it's been on the health front. Maybe like the Middle Mast family, it's, it, it might not necessarily have been a cancer journey, but it may have been something to do with your health. And you believe in healing, and you've prayed, and you're sick of being sick. And you're like, God, I believe that you can heal. I believe you're powerful and amazing. But where are you? Why are you not on my scene when I need you to be on my scene right now? Maybe for you it's in the area of relationships 
Maybe you've got a really, really heart-wrenching situation going on on the relational front for you. It might be with a spouse, it might be with a child, it might be with a friend, it might be with a family member, a colleague, a boss, a neighbor, I don't know. But you're believing for breakthrough. You've forgiven, you've extended forgiveness, you've done a whole stack of things. But that relationship just seems to be sort of like going from, you know, one disaster to the next. Or maybe every now you get glimpses of hope and you sort of get on the edge of your seat, but that's a false alarm because the respite doesn't last for that long and you're back where you started. Or maybe for you, you've got someone in your world that's really naughty and really manipulative. And you sort of go, you know what, they're so smooth and they say all the things, all the right things all the time. And it seems like no one else sees it but me and they say things against you and they sort of, you know, weasel their way around your life and, and, and you feel so hard done by, but you're like, you know, every now and again you get this urge to defame them, maybe to tell someone what they're really like, what you see. But you hear God's whisper and God's whisper says to you, no, I'll look after that. I'll defend you. So you put it away and you move on and you expect God to move in your scene, but he doesn't. And you're like, God, but I'm doing all the right things. I'm doing what you've asked me to do. Where are you on my scene? Have you ever caught yourself asking that question? You know, we sort of go, oh, we're in church. We can't really admit that we asked that question. For those of you who would call yourself believers and followers of Jesus, you go, oh, I can't really admit asking that. You know what? I've asked that question before too. Because we're human beings and on this side of eternity, our lives are so unpredictable that sometimes our faith and what we see going on and our head and our heart don't align. So whatever it is going on for you at the moment, <clears throat> you are not alone. The book of Esther, which we are going to unpack over the next three weeks, is an incredible book full of incredible, raw, desperate life and death scenarios in the life of this woman, Esther, and in the other characters. And as we unpack that over the next three weeks, you'll learn more about the dire circumstances, the life and death scenarios in the life of Esther. But if anyone had the right to say, God, where are you? Why are you not on my scene? It would have been Esther. Let me give you some background and bring you up to speed on the story of Esther. Um, the book of Esther actually introduces us um, or is introduced to us through the, um, the, the life of the king who, uh, who was in reign at the time, and his name was King Xeris. Now, he actually divorced his wife, Vashti, for, uh, for various reasons, and um, we learn about the fact that he was a single man at that point, and the palace and the people around him decided to find him a wife, yeah? And so... We're introduced to Esther at this point. We're introduced to Esther and we understand that she um, is a, a young Jewish girl. Her Persian name was Hadassah, but she's a young Jewish girl and she's an orphan. So when her mum and dad died, her cousin Mordecai took her over and he raised her from that point on. <clears throat> like I said, the palace was in search for a wife for the king because, of course, the king can't be lonely and without a woman. And so they set out a search for a wife. And uh, the craziest thing, um, the craziest process took place in order to find King Xerius a wife. So they set out word and they basically recruited all of these young women who were eligible to become the king's wife. 
And so it was like a beauty pageant, if you like. And so there were 400 women in the palace competing for the position of queen. Now, if you're a girl, you know that sort of makes for a whole lot of strife and a whole lot of competition, right? And so what they did, 400 women lived in the palace for 12 months. (laughs) 12 months. Over the course of that 12 months, they were treated with essential oils, beauty products. I mean, Maya would have made a raking, right? Everything you can think of to make them more beautiful, more luscious, more feminine was part of their life for 12 months. And then one day, they were presented to the king and he chose his wife. And you thought shows like The Bachelor were shocking. (laughs) And so to cut a long story short, Esther was chosen as the queen. And then the journey goes on from there. Esther becomes queen and day-to-day queeny things are happening inside the palace. On the outside of the palace, I just want to paint the scene there. On the outside of the palace, her cousin Mordecai used to sort of hover around the palace gates because he just wanted to keep an eye on her because he was a father figure and he was really concerned for her. So he sort of hovered around the palace gates. And another man who hovered around the palace gates was a man by the name of Haman. Now, Haman was a royal official and he was a guy with an amazing ego and he used to walk around and strut about the place expecting everybody in the land to bow down to him. But Mordecai, don't forget, he was an Esther man. He was a Jew as well. And so he decided that he wasn't going to bow down to Persian Haman because he would only bow down to the one true God. And so he made his stance and he made a point and he was like, I'm sorry, but I'm not bowing down to you. But Haman, with his big ego, decided that that was not a good idea. (laughs) He must have been thinking, dude, you're going to pay for this. You do not get on the wrong side of me. (laughs) You don't want to bow, you're in trouble. And so he got a bee in his bonnet, he got himself all worked out, and when ego gets in the way, it's got dire consequences. We're going to read on the screen in just a moment and pick up a piece of scripture of what happens at that point when Haman decides that Mordecai is going to cop it for not bowing down to him. And it says this in Esther 3, when Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay honour to him, he was enraged. Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai, the dire consequences of revenge, right? Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all of Mordecai's people, the Jews throughout the whole kingdom of Ceres. Then Haman said to King Ceres, there is a certain people dispersed among the peoples in all of the provinces of your kingdom who keep themselves separate. Their customs are different from those of all other people and they do not obey the king's laws. So he's telling the king, right? So he's got away with words. He's got the gift of the gab. He's approaching the king and going, you know what? My heart is for you, man. Like, you know, in, in not bowing down to me, really, essentially, they're disrespecting you. We've got to do something about this. So shifty and so sly, it is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. That's his advice. If it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them and I will give 10,000 talents of silver to the king's administrators for the royal treasury. Trying to talk his way into it by going, you do this and I'll exchange some heavy cash. So the king took his signet ring from his finger and gave it to Haman, the enemy of the Jews. Keep the money, he says. The king said to Haman and do 
with the people as you please. The diabolical nature of ego and revenge. It's crazy. It's crazy. What's a signet ring, some of you might ask? I threw this on my finger this morning to show you that a signet ring was basically like a wax stamp. And so here's this shifty, dodgy guy turning up to the king going, hey, you know what, we really should, you know, these people, they're against me and against you and they're bad news, we should get rid of them. You know, let's basically annihilate the whole race. Did you read that? You know, his issue was with Mordecai, but he didn't say let's kill Mordecai. He's like, hmm, let's kill the entire Jewish race. Let's kill them all. (laughs) And the king, in all of his wisdom, says, yeah, you know what? Hey, here's my ring, dude. You know, take this because with this, you can make any decision you want and then just seal it like a wax stamp. And as soon as you've made a decision, just go like that and the law applies. Go and do that. What? Really? And you rule 127 provinces and you're that thick? Really? And so with this signet ring, the king took it off, gave it to Haman, and Haman pretty much had free reign. It'd be like one of us giving our Amex card with an unlimited credit balance on it to someone that we didn't really, you know, know a whole lot about and go, hey, go for your life. I don't bother running anything past me. Just go do what you like, buy what you like. Really? That's what happened. That's what happened. In Esther chapter 3, we read that what happened is Haman went out, did what he wanted to do with the signet ring and basically turned this idea into a decree. Now, back in those times, a decree was 100% irreversible. It's not like in our day and age where, you know, some protesters get up and, you know, we pass a bill through parliament. Yeah, that's a really long process, but we can make change. In those days, a decree meant nothing could ever change. You can, you can do backflips. You can do somersaults. You can be anyone you want to be, but that decree, once sealed with the signet ring, was in place forever. Irreversible. It was an issue. And we're told that that decree became official in chapter 3, and we read that it went out to the 127 provinces that King Xeres looked after and basically became law. And so in 127 provinces, any human being who was a Jew, man, woman, and kids were absolutely devastated. They just found out that their entire race was going to be wiped out. Imagine if someone had turned up this morning and said, okay, we're going to wipe out your entire church. Are you ready, guys? No, we're talking about an entire race of people. And so the scripture tells us that they sat in sackcloth and mourned and they sat in ashes. So Mordecai, who was also grieving and mourning and in great and utter distress, because you imagine that, he decided to get word out to Esther. And so we're going to pick this up from Esther chapter 4. He gets word out to Esther, and it says this, Hattak went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said to instruct her to go into the king's presence, to beg for mercy and to plead with him for her people. Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, so she gets word and this messenger she sends back to Mordecai, this is Esther, she sends back to Mordecai and she says, tell him this, all the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that they be put to death unless the king extends the golden scepter 
to them and spares their life. Now, that might sound unusual to you and I, but the rule of the land was that no one was to dare approach the king. He had a scepter. And if he just decided that he wasn't really interested in you on that day, then he would not point out his scepter to make peace and connect with you, in which case you immediately would die. In which case people would just walk in, take you away and bury you. That was the law of the land. And it makes so much sense for our Western modern brain to understand this, but that's how it worked. And we read on and it says, But 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. So Esther's basically sending out word to Mordecai saying, the king hasn't called for me for 30 days. And again, here's another unusual concept. Yeah, he was married to her, but she only had access to him when he called out for her. And so she's saying to Mordecai, I've got no reason to believe that this guy, yes, he chose me amongst 400 other women, but I've got no reason to believe that I have favor with this guy. Because for the last 30 days, he hasn't called out to me. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. And he says, do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. And for those of you who are familiar with the scripture, you may know that famous piece of scripture from the book of Esther for such a time as this. And so in Mordecai's mind, he's thinking, maybe the very reason why you got into royalty and you got selected and why, you know, you were one in 400 who became the queen was for this moment right here and right now so that you could save the Jews from this. If there was a moment... (laughs) Where Esther was to think, where are you on my scene, God? Where are you? Why aren't you doing anything? It would have been now. It would have been now. She's completely freaked out because as she writes back to Mordecai, she's like, I could die. Like, this is a matter of life and death. This is not, may I just go and approach my husband because he loves me more than anybody else on this earth because he chose me out of 400 and he's just going to do anything I want. This is a do you understand that by me approaching him, I would actually be breaking the law? Do you understand that by me approaching him, I could actually lose my life? And so Mordecai's going for such a time as this. She's not thinking for such a time as this. She's thinking probably, this is my interpretation, but she's thinking, are you kidding me, God? Like, I've been through 12 months of beauty therapy, beauty treatments. I have like, my legs are so red because I've been whacked so many times. And are you kidding me? You are saying that you now want me to turn up and risk my life? In my opinion, she would have probably been going on and on in her head about God, why would you do this to me? If you knew that this day was coming, why would you get me to this point? That's so unfair. You should have saved me from this right from the start. You know, as I was preparing this, I was thinking about a friend of mine who um, has had numerous miscarriages over the last few years, more than we can number on one hand, actually. And so many times she has said, I just can't work out why God would let me get pregnant in the first place. 
Like, it's easier to cope with the grief and the trauma of not being pregnant than it is to cope with the grief and the trauma of actually losing a baby. Why would God do this? And I wonder in my Susie head whether Esther may have thought the same thing. Why would you do this, God? Why would you do this? Why would you do this and where are you? Have you ever thought that? Have you ever found yourself in a situation where you've thought of all the could'ves and the would'ves and the should'ves and you've thought to yourself, gosh, you know, like if that never happened, then that would never happen. And she, she may have been thinking, you know, if I was never appointed as queen, then maybe Mordecai wouldn't have been hovering around the palace gates trying to look after me for crying out loud. And if he wasn't, then he would have never have interacted with Haman. And if he wasn't interacting with Haman, well, you know, we wouldn't be in this situation. Ugh, why am I queen? This was life and death for Esther. I want to pick up the story again at that point in verse 12 now. Sorry, further on. (laughs) No, no, back a little bit. Back a little bit. Awesome. So, Here she is and she's faced with this incredible decision and she doesn't know what to do with herself. Now, don't forget, she's a humble young girl. She's a Jewish girl. She's an orphan. She didn't have mum and dad around for her whole life teaching her bravery and courage and, hey, get up and go. She was just a humble little girl raised by Mordecai, her cousin. And when we look at this situation and we go, well, what's she going to do? What is she going to do? And so I want to pick it up from there. This is what she does. She says, she sent out a reply to Mordecai and she says, go gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. And if I perish, I perish. She's come to terms with the fact that she could die, but she's prepared to do it. And she says to Mordecai, go and get everyone you know, all of our Jewish friends, to fast and pray for three days. Now, for those of you who are fasting at the moment, these stories come at a good time. Because when we planned this series, we didn't really plan it for February during our fast. But I believe with all of my heart as I've been preparing this, that this is a prophetic coincidence for many of us. And that Esther's fast and the outcomes of her fast are prophetic for the outcomes of your fast and of my fast. And we can look at this and we can go, really? And we can just sort of take for granted that she's just this, you know, courageous woman. She's just, you know, well, some of you might think she's highly courageous. Others of you might think she's highly delusional to expect that there would be an outcome. Others might think that she's just a complete nutter. I love um, Charles Swindoll has a great quote and he says this, It's easy for us to brush past this and think that Esther was born with a Mother Teresa conscience and a Joan of the Ark courage, but that is not the case. She was just a humble young girl. She was a humble young girl who'd just taken on this challenge to go and approach the king and try and do something with a decree that had been signed with a signet ring and was irreversible. She was a humble young girl who took it upon herself to get out there and go, although it's been signed with a signet ring, although I know it's irreversible, 
although I know I could die, although I know actually he hasn't shown me any favour over the last 30 days, I'm going to give this a bash. So was Esther just really deep down inside some courageous, inspirational young woman? I don't think so. I don't think so. I think that just like you and I, faced with this incredible life and death situation, she had fear. But fear didn't have her. And I think how she landed in this place was because of her time of prayer and fasting. I think she found her source of strength and courage and tenacity and boldness and risk-taking in her place of prayer and fasting. Because you see, the scripture says, do not be afraid, not do not feel afraid. Feeling afraid is very different to being afraid. I dare say that she would have been shaking in her boots, but she went out there and she did what she promised to do. The next piece of scripture where I want to pick this up and show you what happened is this. It says, when the queen, when he saw um, King Zerus, when he saw Queen Esther standing in the court, because she was in his presence at this moment, can you imagine? Her heart would have been jumping out of her chest right this moment that we're picking up from. He was pleased with her and the butterflies and the racing heartbeat and that I could die at this moment. Sort of eased for a second because we're told and he held out the golden scepter that was in his hand. And so Esther approached and touched the end of the scepter. Then the king asked her, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom you ask, it will be given to you. Sigh of relief. She's like, right, so now we've gone from life or death to yes or no. (laughs) We've moved past the life or death. I've gotten through that. And now I just have to ask my question. But it's either a yes or a no. But I've moved past that moment. And I'm not going to die anymore. And I know I haven't done any justice describing this and painting the scene as to how incredibly, outrageously risky and distressing this would have been for Esther. But I hope that God lands it with you somehow. You see, I want to tell you something. And what I want to tell you is this. God is not a God who's limited to anyone's plans, to any of our situations, to any of our mishappenings, to any man or woman's manipulative plots, to any king's delusional agreement of here, take a ring, make a decision, do what you like. Our God is not a God who's limited by those things. You see, our God is a God who has your situation and my situation in full control. He's got your marriage. He's got your wife. He's got your husband. He's got your kids. He's got your neighbours. He's got that boss. He's got everything in his control because the God that we worship is sovereign. The God that we worship is so incredibly mind-blowing that I want to read you this verse, which I... which completely distorted my time management this week because I sat on this and I was just like, just mind blown thinking about this concept. 
Because you see, when you and I are in that place in life where we go, God, where are you? Why are you not on my scene? I trust you. I believe in you. I've grown up in church for crying out loud. I've got precedent that tells me that you're going to come through. But where are you right now? Where are you on my scene when I need you to be on my scene? And I want to tell you something. I want to tell you something, church, that for some of you who are not in a hard situation right now, that's okay. Take this away for another day and another season because you and I know that life is full of unpredictable challenges. You and I know that we don't know what tomorrow holds. If this doesn't apply to you right now, take it away for another day. But you see, when you and I are faced with challenges, we see three things. We see people, we see plots, and we see problems. God says ans- God sees answers. God sees loopholes. God sees solutions. God sees breakthrough. And I want to read you this verse. If you've got a pen, write it down. If not, snap the screen and take it away and sit with it and let it absolutely breathe life into the next time you are stuck and wondering where God is on your scene. And it's from Proverbs 21 and verse 1. And it says this, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Did you get that? The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Haman had a plot, so what? The king had a a dumb moment, so what? Because our God, your God and my God gets into people's heads. (laughs) Now you might have the best, most loyal, most incredible, most faithful friend in your life. You might have incredible people around you. You might have the most amazing conflict resolution skills. You might somehow dodge problems along the way, somehow. You might have all it takes to get yourself out of the issues that life throws at you, but nor you, nor I, nor anybody that I know on the face of this earth has the capacity to get into people's heads and change the way people think. You see, it was God who got into the king's head and had him extend the scepter to Esther. Because it's God who had the king's heart in his hand like some water in a glass going, well, I want to sort of like tip it over this side. Well, I want to tip it over this side. The king's heart was in the hand of God. It was God who was deciding how to have him think, how to have him move, how to drop thoughts into his head, how to soften his heart, how to lead him. Because it's God who knows how to mess with our heads and the heads of other people. It is God who knows how to mess with the situations in our life to turn things around for us. Get this. In the book of Esther, the name of God is not mentioned a single time. In fact, we know that in the, hun- in the 66 books of the Bible, it is the only book in the Bible where the name of God is not mentioned once. In the book of Esther, there was not this loud voice that said, I am God. Leave it with me. Do not be afraid. None of that. The name of God was not mentioned a single time. And so if there was anyone in the scripture who could face up and go, God, where are you? It would have been these guys. It would have been these guys. Because you see, God might have been invisible, but that didn't stop him from being outright invincible. He might be invisible in your situation and in my situation right now, but he is so invincible that when he comes through, he comes through and he cuts through life and death situations. 
He comes through and he breaks through the craziest things. He comes through and he makes changes to decrees that should never, ever have changed. He comes through and he reverses laws and rules and plots. He comes through and he does incredible things. That's the God that you and I worship. So the next time, the next time you find yourself in a situation where you ask the question, God, are you on my scene? It's an okay question to ask, by the way. It's an okay question to ask because I'm human like you and I ask it too. But I want us collectively to remember one thing, that God is on the scene even when he can't be seen. Because you can't see him and I can't see him maybe, but he's off doing crazy things, toying with people's heads. He's off changing things. He's off reversing things. He's off planning breakthroughs that you and I can't see with our eyes because he is the mosaic artist of your life and my life. He's the artist who pieces our lives together. He's the artist who sees the end from the beginning. He's the sovereign one who has the perfect, beautiful picture for your life in his head. And if you let him craft it, he will craft it. You see, the book of Esther, one thing I learned reading through that and studying that is that everything happened exactly when it should have happened. And if it didn't, a plan could have fallen over. Because when we rush into things, sometimes God's plans cannot unfold because we've induced the baby, so to speak. God is on your scene even when he can't be seen. Are you facing a situation right now? Can you reflect on one that you have faced? If not, put this away for a rainy day for one that you might face. God is always on your scene. God is there. God is there. God is there. You know, <clears throat> the mosaic artist has access to all the bits and pieces. He's got broken bits that he wishes to use. He's got whole bits. He's got different colours. He's got all sorts of things. He's got all the brushes he needs. He's got all the utensils and accessories. He's got everything. The broken bits, the past, where you've messed up a little bit and you're like, well, what can he do with that? And you know, that was all my fault. And yep, I deserve, I deserve anything that comes at me from that. You know what? God says, that's okay too. Because I'm going to take that broken piece and I'm going to make it important. I'm going to piece it into that so that it is part of the big picture. So that when you look at it, in the end, when your crisis is over, you can go, oh my gosh, I can't believe you did something amazing with that broken piece. Really, God? You and I are safe in the hands of our mosaic artist. Because our mosaic artist is a supernatural God, not like you and I. Not like you and I. Not like our best friends. Not like the most courageous, strongest person you've ever known. Not like the person with the biggest muscles or the biggest wisdom or the biggest influence or the biggest networks. He's the supernatural God who can do things that are so mind-blowing that our mind can't even grasp. He's the supernatural God who has outcomes where we stand back and go, whoa, really? If I'd taken that into my own hands, I would have undercut myself because I never had that in mind. <clears throat> you know, I told you about my girlfriend earlier. Who, um, whose husband had this affair and left her in a messy situation where her family were just on her case the whole time and she was getting it from everywhere. And she was like, 
for crying out loud, just get off my case, people. Get off my case and let me do what I need to do. Like if I've made that decision, just, you know, like just get on with me. Just let me live this decision out and help me. And it was torture for her for a couple of years. Weekly they had family dinners and weekly she would have the worst belly aches and the worst migraines because she had everything to fear around that dinner table. And some time ago she rang me up and she says, hey Suze, I've got to tell you the craziest thing in the whole wide world. And she says, one of my family members who are on my case the most, who are always going, you shouldn't have, you're crazy, why did you do that, are you nuts? She says, this family member who's just given me grief for a few years now, done my head in. She said, when she rang me to sort of say, can we do dinner together? I was beside myself. She said, I wanted to vomit because I was like, I can't handle you in a group, let alone one-on-one. And she says, but I agreed to go out for dinner and we sat across the table and she says to me this. I need to give you a little bit of background. The background is this. This family member of hers is studying counselling to be a counsellor. She's on her placement so she's, you know, at that point of the course where she's on her placement, she's going out meeting clients with a, with a supervisor and whatnot. And she says to her, I need you to forgive me. And my friend goes, for what? Because in a million moons, she's not expecting it to. And she says, and then she just starts sobbing and bawling her eyes out and she can't spit it out. She goes, no, I've got this dry mouth going on, like, you know, what, what, what now? And this family member says to her, I need you to forgive me because you won't believe what's happened. This week I had placement and for the third time we've landed the same client. And she's a young woman whose husband's had an affair and she decided to take him back. And her family are giving her grief because they just think she's stupid and she's made the wrong decision. And they keep getting on her case and going, you shouldn't have, you're crazy, you're nuts. She goes, and we're treating her because of the trauma that her family have caused her. And she's sitting there in this room with me and my supervisor and she's beside herself because of the trauma that her family are putting her through because she made this decision to take her husband back. And she says to my girlfriend, and all I could think was, my goodness, that's what I'm doing to you. And I'm so sorry. And will you forgive me? Do you have the ability to get in someone's head like that? Do you or I or anyone we know on this earth have the ability to engineer and align circumstances and scenarios and situations like that? Does anyone you know have the supernatural capacity to bring about breakthrough in crazy, insane not logical, not human ways like that. As the worship team come up, I just want to invite us to get a grip and get fresh revelation of who God really is. Because when you and I fret about the situations that we're in, and I do it too, and when you and I ask, where are you on my scene when he can't be seen, I do it too. We're insulting the God of the universe who can actually get into people's heads, 
who can alter scenarios and situations and people, who can reverse the damage of things that should have come against us but don't. And I pray in Jesus' name this morning that we would just catch some of this. I feel so inadequate bringing this message today because it's unfathomable. I can't find the right words. But I'm praying. I'm praying that we would just catch something new of God today. I am praying that we would catch something new of the mosaic artist this morning. I'm praying that as you fast and pray until the 17th of February, that you would catch something insane, that you would catch, that you would smell, that you would touch the breakthrough that God wants to bring into your life because you have found strength and courage in the place of your fasting. That's our prayer. That's our prayer. And so as we just sing this song, I'm gonna come back up to close. But I just want you to say, Father God, I don't know how this has landed for you. I don't know how it's landed. I don't know whether it's just been like a presentation or whether it's come deep. I don't know whether you've affiliated or whether it's just been a little, you know, we're back to church on a Sunday morning. I don't know how it's landed. But as you close your eyes and sing this final song. Can you just ask God to land it in whichever way he wants for you? Can you ask God to land it in a way that reminds you supernaturally every single time you wonder whether your God is on your scene, that he actually is and he's supernatural and he's got insane solutions and outcomes for whatever it is you're going through. Can you just ask him to land it? I don't have the words. <laughs> but ask him to land it for you, to resonate it for you, to, 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 to speak life into you because the scripture says that his word is like a sword, a double-edged sword that pieces straight through heart, bone and marrow.